Hi, this is Robert Schuler with Melissa's Produce, and you're listening in on Cord Vines and Dimes. Hi, this is Dennis McNally, and you're listening to Cords, Vines, and Dimes. Chugging, got my chips cashed in. Keep chugging, like the blue dog man. Together, all or less in life. Just keep chugging on, on, on. Boy, have we got a show for you today. Hello, Cat Ellis. Hello, Tom Plant. This is Chords, Vines, and Dines, and uh, what yes, a are. show we have for you today. Oh, do we ever. I was so thrilled that we have Dennis McNally on our show. And if that name doesn't ring a bell for you, that music you just heard might give you a clue. <laughs> Dennis was the historian and publicist for the uh, for the Grateful Dead but for a long, many, many years, and he's written... Three books, and I was working on his fourth now. And I got the book, What a Long, it's called A Long Strange Trip. It's the inside history of the Grateful Dead. 620 pages, and it's fine print. It's it's oh. <laughs> it's a lot in there. Actually, I thought he already had four books published, and he's working on the fifth. Could that, be. Is that what it is? But anyway, I, I'm anxious. Um, after looking through the, the one that, he, that you have, wow. I'd like to read some of the other ones, because this is all music history. Oh, yeah. Total music history, and if you're into music and his, the music history in the background, all of his books are fabulous. But just imagine, if you will, the stories he has to tell from being on the road, basically living with the Grateful Dead for many, many years, and he's going to share some unbelievable stories with us today. Well, when you told me, too, that you had in, done an interview at, what, age 13? Uh, something like that. I went to the Grateful Dead House in the Haight, and that was it was the Dead House. And the whole thing just reminds me of that movie, Almost Famous. Yeah, but I went up the door, and there was Jerry Garcia and Pigpen and Bob Weir and <laughs> Phil Esch, and, and here I am, this little kid in 7th or 8th grade. I'm here to do a story for the school newspaper. <laughs> How they couldn't have been nicer. I mean, they really couldn't have been nicer. Oh, I'm sure they were all down to earth. Yeah. Hippie freaks. Oh, you know, they were hippie freaks, all right. My kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> and we have our Inside the Spotlight segment with our uh, dear friend Sean Roberts. Yes. Uh, Sean's going to have his radio show, Your week- Weekly Dose. <laughs> I had to think about it. Your Weekly Dose. I think it's going to be starting in October. Excellent. And he does the reviews of music and uh, some, you know, what's going on in the music world right now. And I also want to thank our sponsor, uh, Melissa's Produce, and I'm still savoring your creamy coconut turmeric soup, uh, immunity soup, soup with turmeric. Boy, did I have fun making that yesterday. Yeah, and it, it's delicious. We got such a beautiful box from Melissa's Produce. It had Ooh. five different bottles of different Melissa's spices, uh, little grinding bottles, right. uh, garlic, turmeric, ginger, uh, cotton candy grapes. Yes, um, we're uh, still eating them yeah. around here. Garlic, what, a dozen cloves of garlic, maybe? Oh, yeah. yes. Well, this uh, coconut immunity <clears throat> soup, oh, it has. It came with, uh, Melissa's has their organic soup starter kit. Right. Which has potatoes, carrots. Uh, celery, carrots, onion. Oh, there was one other thing. I can't remember what it is. There was five different things in there. And then he also sent a bunch of garlic. 
So the the soup started. I started with the organic soup starter uh, kit, and then added garlic and the coconut oil, salt, the special, the grinding right uh, pepper and salt, uh, vegetable stock, turmeric, ginger, uh, ground cumin, and nutritional yeast, which was very interesting because I never used nutritional mm. yeast before. Well, I feel healthier already. Oh, it has coconut milk and lime, and then it said to use the cayenne pepper on well, top. Well, you put the lime, I, you put the lime in the coconut and stir it all it up. up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and but that one thing that was really interesting, and I don't know, you can't really taste it, but they're also very healthy for you. Are the cashews? Yes, raw cashews. Yeah. Do you know that cashews are the only kind of nut that you can buy that's not in the shell? I did not know that. Their no. shell is is. I would say po- it's toxic. The okay. shell, that's why. And it has to go through a whole process uh, for the cashew to get it out of the shell. I'll be so darned. you don't get any of the yeah. shell. Otherwise, you could get very, very ill. Well, I'm glad that they take care of that for us before Isn't we Isn't that an interest? That's my yeah. interesting tidbit for the for the show. Yeah. No, so our official produce sponsor is Melissa's Produce, melissas.com. Thank you, Robert Schuler and the crew. And it's my turn to pick a recipe, which I'll do in the next week or so. So should we go into uh, our good friend, Sean Roberts? Yeah, inside the spotlight. Let's do it. Welcome to Inside the Spotlight. I'm Sean Roberts, reporting on reviews on gear and other items for musicians, as well as music news, music trends, and advice to those wanting to get inside the music industry. Well, guys, last week I told you about some pickups that I found on eBay. Well, now... I've got a brand new product for you guys to check out. Now, a lot of us out there, we either hate our Strat or we love our Strat. Well, the thing is, is that we're always trying to find that secret tone or that magic tone for us, right? Well, I've got something that you guys might be interested in. So it's called the King Tone Switch. Now, what this is, is basically it kind of replaces your uh, tone knob on your Strat, the second tone knob, which is hardly ever used, all right? And what it does, it adds a fatness and edge to your tone in your Strat. You get better vibrato tracking on this. Uh, when your string string bends basically becomes a little bit more articulate, you get a little bit of a tubey, hollow quality to every note with it. And then with the new treble bleed option, you can also now fine-tune your treble bleed settings with 16 options covering all commonly used treble bleed configurations and several unexplored options as well. Now, including adding the top end, when your volume is reduced or very subtle settings which are halfway in between, the triple bleed circuit is bypassed at position one so it won't mess with your fuzz tones at all because we know we love our fuzz tones. Now, if you already have a triple bleed circuit in your guitar, you can permanently disable the triple bleed option and believe it or not, it only takes about five minutes to install. Now, this knob works with any guitar. It easily fits inside with no problem. You've got six different tone positions there with the dip switches. It works alongside your remaining controls. Remember, your treble bypass and true bypass is 100%. Uh, it takes, again, about five minutes to install. It replaces the often unused lower tone controls I mentioned before. And it opens up a huge range of tones in your Strat overall. Now, it will work on Strats, Tellys, and regular humbucker guitars. However, it's not recommended if you have active pickups. So, you know, oh well, but hey, it is what it is, right? Now, 
The design on this, again, is 100% passive, meaning you do not need a battery. It's super easy to install. You got just three wires to connect to the volume pot, okay? So the sounds that you get on this, again, there's six different ones. So what do you get? Well, you get number one, which is your true bypass. Your normal tone is 100%, it's unaffected. Number two is your treble bleed is engaged. So when you roll your volume down, you'll still retain the high end with no more dull tones. Number three, it's more of a Hendrixy kind of edge added. So it's a little bit more fuller, warmer, and a little bit more focused tone. Number four, it's 100% Vaughn. Yep, we're talking Stevie. It's 2B bite, lots of attack, very fat, and very, very warm. Now, number five is somewhat similar because after all, it's named after Albert King, so it's the Albert. What can we say? The switch was named after him, and it's exactly what you're gonna get from that. Number six, it's the master himself, it's BB King. Yep, the tone is extremely fat, it's nice and thick, but it still has a top end bite, which is really nice for all of us. So if you wanna check out more on this, simply go to kingtoneguitar.com, go to their shop and look for their King Tone Switch. Now there's two different versions. There's the Classic and the SRV, which is Stevie Ray Vaughan. Check them both out. They're gonna do something a little bit different, but very similar on each one. But no matter what, I think you'll be happy I sent you there. So check them out. And in news, of course, we did lose a big icon recently, Jimmy Buffett, the singer-songwriter who drew millions of fans with his folksy tales of living and loving on tropical sandy beaches with frozen concoctions in one hand and a cheeseburger in paradise in the other. Well, we lost him, unfortunately. He was 76 years old, and we lost him due to skin cancer, believe it or not. That's right, people. So just because you're out in the sun, you still got to cover up. But rest in peace, Jimmy. Your music will live on forever. Also, former Smash Mouth lead singer Steve Harwell, whose distinctive raps can be heard on the ska punk pop classics such as Walking on the Sun, All Star, The Morning Comes, and of course their cover of the Monkees I'm a Believer has passed away as well, following a long battle with various health issues that forced him to retire from music in 2021. He was only 56 years old. That's only three years older than me, folks. Yep, he. Uh, it's been, it was announced by Smash Mouth's manager, Robert Hayes, that Harwell had entered into a hospice care for a final stage of chronic liver failure, was being looked after by his fiancée, and he only had one week to live. So rest in peace, brother. Uh, Steve, you're definitely going to be missed as well, but your music will live on. Well, speaking of illnesses, well, we've got two other guys Bruce Springsteen announced that uh, he'll be receiving treatment for symptoms for peptic ulcer disease. Now, what that is, I'm not too sure, but it doesn't sound good. But it's basically forcing him to postpone all of his shows scheduled for September as part of his ongoing 2023 tour. And on the other side, Steven Tyler has also suffered a vocal cord injury during one of Aerosmith's recent concerts. So the singer has dealt with vocal cord issues in the beginning since the mid-August or so, and Aerosmith announced that they'll be postponing dates on their farewell tour as a result of Stephen's injury. 
Well, now on the lighter side of things, critically acclaimed Detroit rapper V's has just announced his partnership with Warner Records and the launch of his new label, Navy Wavy. Yep, that's what he named it, folks. The deal was announced by Aaron Bay Shuck, the CEO and co-chairman of Warner Records, and Tom Carson, COO and co-chairman of Warner Records, alongside Terrence Snake Hawkins and longtime music executive and management for V's. So I guess a lot of new rappers out there are going to be uh, taking a look at with his new label, and I'm sure he'll probably bring us some wonderful music uh, from anywhere across the U.S. That's what I'm thinking. Also now, Atlantic Records is celebrating 75 years of being in the business, and as a part of Atlantic Records' 75th anniversary celebration, the label, in conjunction with Rhino Entertainment, has launched an extensive year-long vinyl series featuring 90 releases spanning the entire history of the company, from its earliest days until the present. The series encompasses iconic acclaimed albums across virtually every popular music genre, including special editions and many that have never been on vinyl before. The unprecedented series has been curated by Atlantic Records chairman and CEO Craig Coleman. So go out there and pick up that vinyl because we know we love our records and love spinning those things. Now every once in a while we always wonder, geez, maybe you should go out and busk tonight or become a street performer. Does it help? Will it bring in extra income? Well, it can. I've got some friends of mine who sometimes come home with an extra 150 to $200 in their pocket. So you never know what can happen. And hey, with gas prices, that can definitely help out. So here are some tips for street performers and buskers out there. Number one, work out a unique cover song, something that everyone on the street will know. Look, it's hard to grab attention with originals, but if you can get passerbys to stop, your chances of tips will double. Number two, once you have a crowd of 10 or more, make them cheer. Basically, what that cheering will do, it will attract other people as well, and more people will come and see you play. Number three, location, location, location. It's not just about buying a house, but look, corners with lots of traffic where you aren't in competition with others, it's going to be easy for you. Lack of competition is singers for singers is key. Hard to get that word out. Number four, make a playful inviting tip jar sign that encourages people to purchase CDs on their own while you're playing. Make change. I trust you. Something of that nature. Number five, put love into your street stage. Small rug, stool, TV dinner table with maybe a tablecloth. Little touches to make it seem more professional or maybe they're in your living room. Number six, make friends with those other street performers, breakdancers who are louder than you. While performers fight for attention, it means everyone loses. Offer to split time. Number seven, play shorter sets. Limit yourself to 15 minutes and stop to sell CDs. Clear the crowd. Two hour sets aren't needed here. Play your best four or five songs and then move on. Number eight, don't beg. Look, you're going to make more in the end by creating demand based on quality. Begging sucks the magic out of the experience. Number nine, get there early. The best spots go fast in certain cities, so you might want to have to hold a spot up for out four hours. It's usually a first come, first serve type of a thing, so get there early. Number 10, it's not them, it's you. That's right. In other words, listen to what the crowd 
is telling you. If your CDs aren't selling, switch up your show. Trust the crowd. Look it. While they're there in front of you, man, they are going to be your best focus group. So listen to what they have to say. All right. So there you go, guys. Some of the best tips I've got for you there for being a street performer and busking. Next week, I might even tell you some of the best equipment to use for busking as well. So until then, guys, I will catch you next month. Once again, I am Sean Roberts for Inside the Spotlight here on Chords, Vines, and Dines. But don't forget, you can also hear me on my podcast, Your Weekly Dose, which will be returning on the airways live every Saturday starting on September 30th at 10 a.m. And you can listen by going to yourweeklydose.com. Yep, that's where we'll be. Now, back to you, Cat and Tom. Sean, thank you so much, our dear friend, Sean Roberts, and Inside the Spotlight every third Sunday right here on Chords, Vines, and Dines. He is so good. I just love him, the pizzas. And we're going to, I'm still talking with Robert Rankin Walker about his uh, segment coming up. We're going to do about local music and what's going on with Heyday Productions and Promotions. And should we talk about a certain birthday party that we were at this week? (gasps) We had a beautiful (laughs) birthday party. For my little grandson. Not we, so little anymore. No, he's 14, and we had over at Teakwoods here in Wildemar. And it was the who's who of Temecula Valley Oh, musicians. I said, if anybody wanted to wipe out the local music scene, <laughs> all they had to do was drop a bomb there or something, because, boy, I tell you, that place was packed. They were We were expecting about 20 people, over 50. Wow. It came just for my uh, my little music man, Braden. Kenny and Tara, the spell there, John Lane, Esther and Alex, George and Grace, Robert Rankin Walker, and, and on and on. Oh, and yeah. On. And, and Lisa? Lisa, yeah. Lisa Castle, uh-huh. who we had our, on our show as well. And uh, John Dr- Crutchfield? Yes. And we had every everybody who was who's who in. Yeah, every, the, I really can't think of anyone. Oh, and who Rob wasn't. Miller. Okay. Yeah. Robert Miller came. From Two Fish? Yeah. And uh, so it was wonderful. It sure was. Shall we uh, play the game of food, or do you want to save that for later in the show? No, let's do the game of food. We'll do this real quick, because I want to get on to Dennis. Dennis McNally. I'm still shaking myself, going, wow, what did we experience in that discussion? such a nice and down-to-earth guy. I'm just just so thrilled that we were able to uh, interview him. So thank you, Tom, for getting... (laughs) You bet. Okay, do you want me to go first? Go for it. Approximately how oh, many... Oh, category. Oh, <laughs> ingredients. Okay. Approximately how many apple varieties are grown around the world? 75, 750, 7,500, or 75,000? 750. Eh. 7,500. Wow. 7,500. I was torn, but uh, wow, that's amazing. Regional dishes. Oh, gosh. If you order a sloppy joe in New Jersey, what will you get? A, a hamburger bun filled with cooked ground beef but no sauce. B, a club sandwich with lunch meats, coleslaw, Swiss cheese, and Russian dressing. C, fried fish cakes with a side of spaghetti. Or D, a deep fried hot dog with extra chili sauce, mustard, and raw onions. That's a sloppy joe in New Jersey. I'll go D. You would be 
It's a club sandwich with lunch meats, coleslaw, Swiss cheese, and Russian dressing. Oh, that's not a sloppy. <laughs> I'm sorry. They're wrong. <laughs> okay. Your turn. Okay. Uh, category, people and pop culture. Okay. What cooking term has Rachel Ray been credited for popularizing? A-E-V-O-O? Yes. Do you want me to continue? Just well, a- go for it, sure. B, Gabagool? C, BAM, or D, fourth meal? E-V-O-O, yes. final answer. You're right. <laughs> okay. You know, BAM is... That's Emerald, that Emerald, Emerald Lagasse. Yeah. Uh, cooking tools and techniques is your category. Okay. This conical clay pot is used in North Africa to make slow braised dishes of the same name. Is it A, cassoulet, B, tagine, C, rondeau, or D, cazuela? Uh, pure guess. D. No, C. I meant C. And both of those are wrong. Oh, okay. It's a tagine. Tagine. Oh, I should. I actually have one. You do. Yep. It's in storage. (laughs) Probably why you haven't seen it. But okay. All right. Anything else we need to cover before we get into our interview? Dennis McNally uh, was the historian and publicist for the Grateful Dead, and remains friends with the remaining members of the dead. He's written many books. He's a wealth of knowledge, a very nice man, as you'll hear, and we were just so blessed to have him say yes when we asked if he'd do our show. Yes. Are we ready? Should we roll them? Let's do it. Kat, I am so very excited and I feel honored that we have Dennis McNally as our guest today. Dennis, if you don't know, is the historian and publicist for The Grateful Dead. Welcome, Dennis. Hi. I am so excited with you, Tom. I've been looking forward to speaking with Dennis all week long. So, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I uh, just received a copy of your book, A Long Strange Trip, and I was expecting, you know, a a meaty, but this is huge. It's a a, a 620-page volume. Well, you know, it took me long enough, so I had to, like, justify all that time by by, uh, trying to fit in everything I could. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's long. I had an editor say, have you thought about splitting it in two and publishing it in two parts? And I just said, no, (laughs) 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 one of these is enough. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's a big one. It's a big story. Absolutely. I want to start with a little anecdote. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Was Rock Scully the dad's first manager? Uh, co-manager, he and uh, Danny Rifkin, yes. Okay. When I was in seventh grade, I was going to uh, school in San Francisco, and at that point, I was still a, a, a already a huge music fan. I somehow got a hold of Rock's number, called him and said, I would like to come interview the Grateful Dead for our school newspaper, and he said, come on over. So I met Pigpen and Jerry and Phil and Bob at the Dead House, uh, we're probably talking 1968. Uh, yep. Uh, well, probably '67. If it was if Jerry was there. Yeah. Uh, after the uh, the infamous bust of uh, October fourth, nineteen sixty-seven, um, the Grateful Dead, in in various fits and starts, um, started moving to Marin, where it was a little more peaceful. Right. Uh, I forgot to mention, Pigpen was there too, and. Uh... I just oh, yeah. would, would give my eye teeth if I had a copy of that recording, but alas, it's long gone. 
I know the feeling well. How did your relationship with the dead begin? How did you all come together? Well, uh, I started graduate school in the fall of 71, and uh, very quickly my best buddy became a guy um, uh, who was a, mad, a, mad, a massive deadhead, uh, with, with the uh, hot tuna exception. And that's pretty much all he listened to was, was the dead and tuna. And uh, we uh, spent a lot of time together, and I started becoming a dead. I, I listened to the dead earlier, but hadn't really, you know, connected truly. Um, and one night in that year, I was uh, looking for a dissertation topic, um, and I said out loud, maybe I'll do the beats because, because that would be interesting. And Chris, who was a math major, I might add, um, said, uh, no, you should do Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia, and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. Now, being a typically broke graduate student, it's just about redundant. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, you know, the idea of having a place to stay in New York was, whew. And oddly enough, uh, about a year before that, my parents had moved to within 20 miles of where Kerouac had grown up in Lowell. Uh, so the universe was whispering in my ear to do that. So um, I started, uh, and then later that that was in January of '72, and in that fall I went to my first Dead concert. Uh, Chris brought me, and then um, uh, long story short, in 1979, uh, by which time I really wanted to write a book about the Grateful Dead, um, I had. Um, Finished the Kerouac book, published it, sent a copy to Jerry and uh, and Hunter uh, at their fan club address because that's all I knew or had, and sort of laid a plot, which was that I wrote an article about uh, the band's new about the New Year's ritual of Deadheads. Uh, and again, long story short, uh, in the fall of '80, that article came out just as they started this long series of shows at the, uh, a small theater in San Francisco, the Warfield Theater. Not so small, 2,500 seats, but even by then, they were a little bigger than a 2,500-seat theater. But, you know, this was like a special long run and, and a chance to really, you know, sort of take up residence. And, um, and they did. And in the course of that, I met Jerry. And again, long story short, he sent some guys to me and they said, Jerry says, why don't you do us? Uh, <laughs> they said, why don't I do a book about them? To which I, at the moment, was trying to be reasonably cool. And instead of having a heart attack or jumping up and down, uh, <laughs> I said, that sounds interesting. And then I went home and got really, really loaded. Um, <laughs> but, but uh, and then, um, I was I had been working on it for three years at that point, and then slowly, what I didn't realize, of course, uh, at the time, the Grateful Dead being what it was, was that uh, the first two years was uh, passing the. It was like a, a fraternity, except uh, both genders, and it was, uh, I, and everybody could blackball you. You know, if any one person had said, "That guy's a," blah, you know. Um, and uh, I guess I didn't piss off anybody too much. <laughs> and uh, four years later, or three years later, in 84, uh, Rock, who had theoretically been the publicist, went away for his health. And I, um, uh, the, the lady 
Uh, her name was Mary Jo. Mary Jo, uh, at a band meeting, a company meeting, uh, said, what are we going to do about the media? Uh, because people call and nobody returns their calls. And then they call back and they annoy me. And, uh, <laughs> and she was the receptionist. And, uh, uh, and Jerry said, eh, get McNally to do it. He knows that stuff. Um, and um, that's how I became the publicist, which I might add, after a while, I realized that I could not be a publicist and, and a historian at the same time. And so I, I put it on the back burner, carried a notebook around to write down funny things. And finally, in 2002, and Jerry, Jerry passed, uh, I resumed work on the book. And in 2002, um, it was published. It's an incredible history, uh, uh, like it says on the cover, an insider's look at the Grateful Dead. We we have a mutual friend in common, um, Dennis, Bill Payne from Little Feet. And I saw you a few years back when you were uh, together and uh, you were telling stories and Bill was playing. I remember you telling a story about the Grateful Dead at the White House. Do you mind sharing that story? Uh, no, um, I don't mind. Uh, let's see. So my friend Dennis, who's who's a deadhead, of course, um, I don't think I know. None, no, that's not true. Uh, Dennis called and invited us, and this being you know sufficiently odd, um, you know the previous years being Republicans who were not having a grateful day in the White House, hmm. uh, a, a number of most of us went. Bobby was meeting at the Interior Secretary to lobby for environmental stuff. Say you know they, the the dead never used the dead as part of their politics um but as individuals you know they had their opinions and bobby was definitely an, an environmentalist so anyway we went uh president clinton was in atlanta that day but al um Gore, you know graciously met with us and we said hi we had met him actually before because um tipper gore uh actually um was a former drummer, believe it or not, and, wow. and like and like to talk about drums with Mickey. But uh, that day, what was interesting was was of course the, that that uh, he took, you know Gore took us into the Oval Office, and President Clinton had John Kennedy's desk from the Smithsonian, and anybody of my age, now pretty old, uh, will remember. Um, the pictures in Life magazine in the early, like 1961, I guess it was, um, of John John, uh, the Kennedy son, playing in this, this, this desk had some kind of secret compartment, and he was playing with the desk. So uh, Vice President Gore is, is showing this, in particular to Jerry, uh, but people were sort of wandering around, you know, just going, ooh, I'm in the Oval Office. Which, it's a trip. And... Um, and he's showing him the desk, and I was sitting there. I was sort of stood off and was looking at the two of them. And what was making me, you know, fascinated was there's Gore in a, you know, what do I, I wouldn't know a thousand dollars from a ten thousand dollars suit, but a really elegant suit, okay? And there's Jerry wearing sweatpants, his his t-shirt <laughs> liberally doused with beard dandruff, um, oh and God. and. This looked like an unmade bed, and the great thing about it was that neither he, he, neither he nor the vice president paid any attention to each other's dress. They were just having an interesting conversation, and I thought that was kind of wonderful. 
At one point, Dennis, did you visit a restroom and go, oh my God, they didn't, something like that? No, the time I visited the restroom was when we were having, we were invited to dinner at his residence, which is the, the official vice president's residence, which is at the Naval Observ Observatory right. in D.C. And um, I uh, went to use the men's room. Um, and first I was like, I just was sort of walking down the hall and there's this inset door to the kitchen and, and there's a secret service agent there. I mean, we were surrounding him, Al and, and uh, Tipper in the, the, the living room and hanging out and like 10, five steps away, even in his own home, even though all of us had been vetted, uh, there was a secret service agent, which was, you know, startled me. And then I went to the bathroom um, and uh, smelled a certain smell that you expect at um, Grateful Dead stages, but not necessarily uh, uh, at Vice President's residence. And later, I forget who brought it up. Maybe I did. I'm not sure. But Jerry just said, oh, man, I just couldn't pass up the opportunity. <laughs> That's such a great story. I love that. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> Do you stay in touch with any of the guys, Dennis? Um, yeah, no, no. I mean, in particular, Bobby and Mickey, we talk time to time, yeah. You must have some other, uh, just one or two other amazing stories from traveling with the dead. Um, I'll, I'll give you my A number one, okay? Okay, oh, good. Uh, it, when I was doing college lectures, this was, this was my conclusion, because uh, it really is one of the wilder experiences. It's the most interesting experience I ever had with the Grateful Dead, not having nothing to do with music. So, uh, summer of 87, we played in Telluride, Colorado. Um, quite fun. And Telluride's at like 8,000 feet and the, and the airport's at 9,000 feet. And so in order, uh, and we you know flew charter, and in order, uh, to get off the ground um, in uh, at Telluride, um, they had this very, it was not the usual G3, which is this fancy schmancy corporate jet where everybody gets, you know, you basically, the orientation of it is that you look inside and congratulate yourself on how well you're doing. Um, and this looked kind of like a DC3 from, you know, 1936. It had one seat on each side of the aisle. It was like a cigar. Um, and um, as I say, it, it, it could take off from such an altitude. So we get up in the air and the pilot comes on. We're flying to Phoenix, uh, where it's 115 degrees, I think. And, um, and uh, the pilot comes on. He says, do you guys uh, want to uh, uh, you know, go straight to Phoenix or do you want to be tourists? Well... <laughs> Listen to your, think, think about who you're talking to. So anyways, <laughs> Stupid tourism. question. And then he says, we could go into the Black Canyon of the Gunnison or Monument Valley. Monument Valley. So, you know, Monument Valley is where all the cowboy movies, you know, John Wayne and John, John Ford movies and, and uh, um, uh, Back to the Future, and blah, blah, blah. And then those famous uh, buttes called the Mittens which, you know, have, they almost look like hands. They have little thumb stubs sticking out. Uh, now, those buttes are 2,000 feet high. And 
just closing in on sunset. It was, you know, late afternoon. And all this stuff is made of sandstone, which at twilight just bleeds color. It's astonishing. Mm. And the pilot peels off, and we go into Monument Valley at 1,000 feet. Wow. So and it's like, how, unless you have a, a private plane, there's no way that you can that you can be in the middle of all these buttes. You know, you're either looking at it from the bottom or from way high up, uh, in a you know in a uh, commercial airplane or whatever. So anyway, it that was just mind-boggling. It was, as I say, just the twilight. So the colors were amazing, and you know, we're just you know ooh ah. I mean, you know, Mother Nature did her best work in Monument Valley, or some of it anyway. So we're looking, but that. That's because this is Grateful Dead. There's, you know, there's more. Wait, there's more. Um, Mickey Hart's son, Taro, who's then about eight, uh, is sitting in the pilot's lap, and the pilot swears he's flying the plane. Uh, Mickey has purchased, uh, stopped back, a, uh, a sink uh, boa constrictor that's about six feet long called Cosmic Charlie. And Charlie is, has, been let loo- has gotten loose and is going up and down the plane uh, bumping people's feet and either oh my god either pooping on their shoes or scaring the poop out of them or both uh, and in the back which happened to be just one row behind me uh, on the other side Jerry is actually giving a film history lecture on on yeah that's the shot of opening shot of stagecoach blah 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 <laughs> and I was just sitting there going this just is about the weirdest and weird being a very positive uh uh, adjective in the world of Grateful Dead. This has got to be the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it was hysterical. It was just wonderful. What an amazing memory, and and I'm sure you have thousands of others. Um, what was it like to be friends with with the guys in the band? Um, that's you know, I, in all the days, I don't think anybody ever quite asked me it that way. Um, well. I was closest with Jerry, not only because he had hired me, but because, you know, we talked a lot about Kerouac and about, you know, literature in general. Um, and I, Phil, uh, Phil was, uh, I'll tell you a Phil story. Um, so we're flying to uh, Orlando from, uh, I think, North Carolina, but it was and literally, which is, it's Easter Sunday. We're going right over I-95, and there's no traffic because, you know, it's the south and it's Easter. Um, and J- Phil is sitting close to me on the plane, and he's cackling. Um, and I look over, and he's reading a book uh, by a guy named Carl Hyacin. Now, Carl Hyacin is a wonderful uh, Florida-based detective story writer um, who also was uh, then a columnist for the Miami Herald. <clears throat> uh, and Phil's, uh, you know, really enjoyed this book. And I, I read some of Carl. I, 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 I got why he was laughing. Um, it's a very funny man. And um, I said, uh, you know, would you like to meet Carl Heisen? You know, when you're, with the, when you're the publicist for The Grateful Dead, people take your calls, you know. <laughs> so I said, um, would you like to meet him? He said, absolutely. I said, okay, but I got to promise him that, you, that we can, you have to uh, approve him being on stage because, you know, if a guy's going to visit the Grateful Dead, that's what he's, one of the things he's going to want to do. 
He said, sure. So the next day, which turns out, I, Carl reminded me, was April Fool's Day. Uh, didn't even dawn on me. And I called the Miami Herald and I asked for Carl Heisen and I got his, his answering machine at the, at the paper and I said, you know, hi, I'm Dennis McNally with the Grateful Dead and uh, how'd you like to come up to Orlando and see a show, be our guest? Um, and as he said, his first thought was, come on, look at the cat. Uh, who's messing with me? But after a while, he decided to return the call. And, um, and I convinced him that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, I was legit. And um, he said, great. And he, he came up and had a good time. And uh, we became friends. So this comes with a, 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 a writer or a, a, a follow-up. So he's on a book tour in Seattle, and everywhere he goes, he sees tie-dye t-shirts. And he says, the Grateful Dead have to be in town. <laughs> Just like that, that's all of this, it's complete information. So he's sitting in his room, which is in the best hotel in, in uh, Seattle. Um, it's mar- it really wasn't really nice hotel. And um, the Evergreen. And, um, and just to test his theory, he picks up his phone and he uh, gets uh, gets asked to, gets the operator and he says, "Give me Dennis McNally." And the phone rings in my room, which happens to be next door to his. Oh God! And I said, "Yep, yeah, hey, let's go for a drink," and we did. That's a great story, and uh, I know that Cat wants to ask you about some of your other books and. Uh... Go ahead, Kat. Um, I just wanted to say, I, I was reading about your ASCAP award. I know it was like eight years ago, but that is such an honor for your book on Highway 61. Absolutely. I, I will tell you, it's the, first, it's the first award I think I ever got. Um, and I uh, certainly, you know, it's like coming out of, I got nominated for a Grammy once, I'll take that back. But, uh, you know, which I thought was an award in and of itself. But... Uh, uh, yeah, I um, I got the Deems Taylor um, uh, award, and uh, you know I was I was uh, quite puffed up about it. <laughs> Deservedly so. Uh, what got you going uh, to write a book on Highway sixty one? What was your motivation behind that? Well, uh, so I wrote a book about Kerouac, which was primarily on the fifties. And then I do The Grateful Dead, which is the 60s and 70s. And, and um, when I got done with the, the Grateful Dead book, when I had finished the Kerouac book, I had a real horrible uh, postpartum depression. You know, you, you get involved. It's literally, it's postpartum. You get, you get involved with this subject, except that, you know, the incubation period is a lot longer than women carry babies. Uh, <laughs> seven years and... Finally, you deliver, as it were, and then it's like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life, you know? Um, so when I got done with the Grateful Dead book, I said, look, the way to avoid a postpartum crash is to stay pregnant and to just have it <laughs> for, you know, what you're going to write about next. And I, uh, I did. Um, and uh, so I decided that I would work on the background of what, and it, it took a while for me to figure out what I was writing about, but eventually uh, I decided that, that one thread 
of that tradition that ended up with Kerouac and the Grateful Dead. The Bohemian, call it the Bohemian tradition. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 question, the, the questioning tradition that doesn't always accept all of the American myths. Um, that starts really, for my money, with Thoreau and Mark Twain and then, uh, but all of it is uh, the influence of African-American culture, mostly music, but not always, um, on young white youth. And so that's eventually what I figured out was what On Highway 61 is about. And, uh, you know, it was a wonderful book. I, I drove, I traveled up and down the river a couple times and, you know, it's an amazing experience. I covered, uh, uh, you know, I was on a tow barge uh, uh, that uh, had like hundreds of thousands of tons of, of rock. Um, you know, I was on buses and planes and boats and trains and the whole package. And I drove it. So, uh, it, you know, and that, so that was book three. And then I edited one, but book four is called uh, The Last Great Dream. And it's the book I'm working on now. Or just, I was working on it before when you called. Uh, which was... Uh, uh, it's the origins, uh, specifically of Haight Ashbury and the psychedelic uh, counterculture uh, in San Francisco. I think Kat was wondering where the uh, Highway 61 title came from. Well, uh, Highway 61 runs from, well, when it first became, it ran all the way from the Canadian border. Uh, above Duluth, all the way to uh, to uh, New Orleans, uh, and it ended underneath what is now the Superdome. Um, and it was what what connected um, the South to the rest of the United States, symbolically. One of the things, uh, and of course, it was. Um, mystical place because Robert Johnson supposedly sold the soul, which he never did and never claimed. <laughs> At the crossroads. Billiness. Um, uh, but, um, uh, and more importantly, um, uh, symbolically, uh, it connected uh, Bob Dylan. The last part of this book is how Bob Dylan has kind of united black and white folk roots in his own music. And uh, uh, as a child in the 50s, he had grown up listening to a station uh, from Shreveport, Louisiana, um, which brought him, you know, in the mid-50s, we're talking about the very current best stuff coming out of Chicago, uh, black music, um, but, uh, big, uh, you know, stronger black music than just pop. Um, and um, so... Uh, you know the, the radio waves sort of followed Highway 61, and he talks about it in his, in his own books. And and uh, you know, there you go. Speaking of Dylan, were you with the band when it was Dylan and the Dead? Oh yeah. Tell me about those. And what was it like being uh, on the road with Bob Dylan? Well, Bob Dylan is not what you call uh, chatty or. <laughs> or uh, uh, I, as far as I know, he never spoke to anyone except Jerry. Um, certainly not to me. Um, I, um, all I can say is that, uh, that, uh, 
it was a disappointment, frankly, because mm. as he wrote in of himself, he was not in just not in great mental shape um, uh, at the time. Um, and you know, it was ironic because, of course, the Grateful Dead, who made many, you know, fallen on their face many a time, um, uh, they um, uh, were, uh, you know, clean, sober, and really hot to blow the doors off and and be the best backup band he ever heard of. Um, and unfortunately, um, um, you know, he wasn't ready to meet that challenge. And so, you know. I was at one of those shows at the Oakland Coliseum, and I remember it being not memorable. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was just, it, 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 could, it could have been so much better. And, and, you know, we all knew it. He knew it. He, that's what he, that's what he says. Uh, and then the way, <laughs> and the funny part was, so they, they produced Jerry and John Cutler, uh, produced a live album. Um, and he vetoed almost all of it on the grounds that they'd already been released or whatever. And it was like, so what? Um, but Jerry told the story of going, literally going down to LA where, you know, he had that domed, you know, uh, uh, you know, Kublai Khan building in Malibu. And, um, and he, uh, 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 was playing it on a boom box in his kitchen, uh, which, you know, is not exactly the way to hear it at best. And, uh, then he basically tells them to, you know, you know, those songs have already been released, so you can't do it. Uh, you know, original versions of the songs. And it was like, as Jerry said, what are you going to do when he tells you no? You know, yeah. hit him. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing, um, uh, uh, you know, there was nothing you could do. So the end, uh, again, the, uh, the uh, resulting album was, you know, disappointing too. So, so frustrating. I, I know that Jerry had a deep love of, of country, and I was shocked. I think I just learned in the past year or two that he played the pedal steel on Teacher Children. What a talented oh, yeah. man! Yeah, he was a very talented man. That was the and the funny part was that was the first pass, and he was just getting into what the song was about. And he said, "No, let me do it again." And Crosby said, "Nah, that was perfect." Uh, that. I, I can't think of any way that could have been better. It was beautiful. Pretty, it is, it, and it's you know very precise thing yes it's exactly and his work with old and in the way i mean his love of that style of music just shines yeah well old and the, the bluegrass by the way you may not know about it yet but um the bluegrass hall of fame um is going to uh have a uh two-year um exhibit uh de devoted to jerry uh starting in late march of 24 and uh, for anybody that's interested in bluegrass, and you know, it is my understanding that at least at that time, um, uh, "Older in the Way," Jerry's the first album that they put out uh, was the best-selling bluegrass album of its era. Wow, um, which is kind of not right. I mean, you know, they were good, but they were not Bill Monroe. But you know, <laughs> what do you do? Um, I heard, and maybe this is more common knowledge. But uh, the Grateful Dead played more free concerts in a year's time than any of the other bands. Is that all true? 
I would guess, you know, I don't know. Yeah, they did a lot of free concerts. Um, and and uh, so the answer is probably. <laughs> yeah, I read somewhere it was like 400 in a year or something like that, except for uh, one year. I can't remember the reason uh, why. How about that? But, but uh, you know, they did a lot of free shows. Dennis, are there any misconceptions you'd like to clear up about the Grateful Dead? <laughs> you got a week? Um, well, here's, here's the two most obvious ones. Um, I once did an interview with a very famous interviewer whose name will not go repeated. Uh, who spent the entire time of the interview telling me that everybody at the concert, all the, the audience were like, completely drug-addled uh, hippies. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, we've got U.S. senators, we've got a whole lot of lawyers, don't ask me why, but there's some affinity, uh, millions of lawyers, doctors, etc., school teachers, parents, um, and, you know, it's just categorizing the Grateful Dead audience, you know, is, is a terrible mistake. Um, and I had no success in persuading this interviewer to, to uh, you know, clean up the misconceptions. Uh, so I gave up. But uh, that's that's one of them. Uh, one of the things that happened to to observers of Grateful Dead concerts. I'll tell you a funny story. The uh, there's a guy, and I won't say his name, although you can look it up because he wrote a book called uh, his. I take. I will tell, say his name. His name is Doug Copeland, and um, uh, he wrote a book about uh, Gen X. Um, and you know, it was hot stuff. Uh, I mean, as a book, and uh, he uh, called me up and said, "You know, he wanted to do a piece on Grateful Dead, uh, Deadheads." And I said, "Fine, you know, come to the show." It was New Year's Eve. Uh, and, and uh, the New Year's Eve run, which is like five shows. And um, he, he came and I said, you know, out there, go have fun. It's all general admission. With that pass, you can go anywhere you want. And uh, at intermission, he came back to where, where I was hanging out and said, um, his eyes were like spinning. <laughs> and I suppose it was a contact eye. But at any rate, he just said, I'll come back tomorrow. And one half was all he could manage the first day. <laughs> and it's a matter of sensory overload, I think. I mean, you know, leaving aside inhaling a lot of pot fumes. Um, you, it's visually, you know, the audience is so active and so different looking. Um from your average audience uh, that they just um, uh, they could be overwhelming and uh, I you know I, that was an example but I've, I've dealt with enough um, <laughs> I once did again one of those where I try to convince a member of the, the media to you know have a slightly more subtle point of view about the dad and the audience. And, and I, you know, I spent a couple of hours 
giving her the background and what was there and blah, blah, blah. And um, read the article. It was the New York Times. And, and uh, read the article. And the first sentence of the article is, Reef the marijuana fumes, blah, 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 blah. Oh, so I got God. What do I try? What do I try? Dennis, I, I can't thank you enough for your time, and I hope we can do a part two someday. I, you know, you have my number. Dennis, thank you so much. It's been a, a, a joy to uh, visit with you. It's my pleasure. You guys take care, and uh, let me know uh, when the time comes. Great. Thank you so much. Will do, Dennis. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, 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 wow. Wasn't that fun? Oh, I can't wait to have him back. You heard what he said. You've got my phone number. So uh, I will be using his phone number, and uh, we will have another visit with Dennis. Just, I think, truly one of the most fascinating guests we've had, articulate, and he really can give you that inside view of what it was like to be with the Grateful Dead. You know what would be fun to do is meet him up in San Francisco and do a walking tour. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. And have him talk about the stories of here and there and... Well, I'm going up for a family reunion next weekend. I'm going to see if I can reach out to him and get him to sign my book. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Where is he? Now, he's not right in San Francisco. I believe. I don't know this for a fact. I think he lives in Marin County somewhere. Oh, nice, nice. But. And so we've got our guest next week. We have Chris Jacobs. And Chris Jacobs is from the Baltimore area. He was in a band called The Bridge, and uh, I'm one of very few people that heard their music. I guess they were huge out on the East Coast, but never really made it nationally. He's now on his own, and uh, we've heard some of his music, and he's just phenomenal. Matter of fact, he recorded a version of Black Peter, which was a Grateful Dead song, a Jerry Garcia song. And I thought maybe we could just, uh, just as a teaser for next week, listen to a... We're going to uh, play it. Yeah, a, a minute or so of it. Yeah, just but, a little uh, bit. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, Chris is amazing. I think uh, he's he's going to be a national a nationally known name sooner than later. Well, that is, I can't wait. I think it's going to be very exciting. I love what we're doing on the show. All these great guests, and we're also going to have. Uh, I'm working now on on Buzz Campbell. Buzz Campbell and hopefully Lee Rocker from the Stray and, Cats. That's right, and also. Dean Norris, I'm hoping. Hoping, hoping, hoping. Dean Norris from Breaking Bad. I know. I was talking with my daughter about that, and I, I used to sit there and watch it with you, yeah, you up until one scene, <laughs> and that just ruined, and I couldn't handle that. I was like, oh, it, it's just too... And it was so funny, because there was a, that extreme violence, and then they would make it funny. And it was how they, they, it's a juggling act, but they pulled it off. They did, but I, I don't know, it made me a little nauseous at times. Yeah, <laughs> Some yeah of it. I know, I know. I have to admit, but it was a good show, what I did see, and I just... Uh... And Dean was fabulous in it. He was Hank Schrader, the uh, Walter Wright's uh, brother-in-law, I think. His, uh... Yeah, brother-in-law, and yeah. he was the uh, the cop. The DEA. He was, a, he was DEA. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what a show. There's nothing else like it. And then the spinoff, uh, Better Call Saul, was fabulous as well. That was funny. That yeah. wasn't quite as uh, violent. No, it wasn't. Graphically violent. No. All right, well, we did it again. There's another edition of Chords, Vines, and Dines in the books. And uh, thanks to our official produce sponsor, Melissa's Produce, melissas.com. We'll see you next week with our guest, uh, Chris Jacobs, and uh, the Curry Cravings Lady, Nandita. Oh, boy, and a wonderful visit with her. And uh, so, oh yeah, she's got some fabulous recipes. Yeah, all the Indian recipes. And and we've looked looked through her book, and uh, oh, beautiful. 
and she took all the photos. I'm just very pleasantly surprised. That's great. That's wonderful. See you next week. All right. Have a good weekend. This is Robert Rankin Walker here with Chords, Vines, and Dines. So excited to be talking to you guys.